This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. This is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and we are here with Dr. Lieutenant Colonel Nate Jennings, Assistant Professor of Military History, Department of Military History, Command and General Staff College. Dr. Jennings, welcome. Uh, welcome. Thank you. We're also here with <laughs> Dr. Lieutenant Colonel Bill Nance. Glad to be here. And we're talking today with Dr. Jennings about his research specialty on the Texas frontier. Uh, so if you could start us off by explaining what you mean by Texas frontier. Where are we in time and space? Yeah, so the Texas frontier goes, you know, the frontier is usually spoken of in relation to some kind of advancing Western civilization. So it could go all the way back to the Spanish Empire and their friction with the Plains tribes, really north of the Rio Grande. But then the part I look at is the arrival of the, uh, the Anglo-American settlers, Stephen F. Austin, those guys, in the 1820s uh, as they add a new ingredient to this already volatile mix. So this is starting, if I remember correctly, from my seventh grade Texas history class. This is starting after 1821, yes. when the Mexican government invites settlers from America to kind of restart uh, agriculture. Yeah, the initial invites from the Spanish government, actually. Okay. And then about a year later, revolution, Mexico's its own country, and the contract, the empresario contract that's given to Austin and a few other guys has to be renegotiated, and it is granted. And uh, so initially it's 300 families uh, of quality, of course, uh, but that 300 turns into everybody and their brother and their uncle coming into the scene to, for, to get some free land. So let's, let's kind of uh, outline where we are. Uh, when we say Texas, we're largely talking about these people settling in what is now East Texas, correct? Correct. Uh, not far from Houston. Uh, San Felipe is the, the original colony, but there's other colony centers. Uh, but yes, definitely on the, on the, uh, the lower Colorado, uh, the closer, to the, closer to the coast, so that can have a maritime access to New Orleans, other markets. Okay, so they're basically settling the coastal strip and then a little bit up the rivers Correct. that run through central Texas? Yeah, the rivers of the highways. So basically then we have a, a group of white settlers, uh, many of the leaders of whom came from Tennessee. If Correct. Correct. And then what's to the west and north? Well, uh, to the west is the Great Plains. And this is... Uh, this is a physical barrier to uh, white settlement expansion. Um, to the north, uh, some, some wooded terrain, really, but then also into the Great Plains, you know, what will be Oklahoma. So these Texans are kind of venturing out on the last, I guess, extension of the, the vast wooded forest going all the, way, all the way to the east coast. So it would be familiar to them uh, for farming, ranching, things like that. Okay, so who is to the north and west? Okay, so at the time of the arrival, it's, it's uh, the dominant uh, power is the Comanche Empire. Some people question that term, maybe more of a confederation of tribes. But the Comanche, they, uh, they've they established a hegemony over the Great Plains. They have other tribes who pay tribute. They 
are kind of frenemies with the, the Spanish Empire and then the Mexicans, sometimes taking tribute, other times raiding. Um, and initially, uh, and so the Texans are arriving and uh, the way I say it, essentially putting themselves on the shelf of the Walmart that is the, uh, the raiding trading environment of the Great Plains. <laughs> They've offered themselves up as easy pickings. And, and they're probably not prepared for that, I'm guessing. They're not prepared for mobile warfare. Um, they're not prepared uh, to deal with tribes who can uh, navigate 100 miles without a map, um, who understand the environment, have acclimatized horses, and have some of the best cavalry tactics in the world at that time. Um, they're used to dealing with woodland Indians. So we're talking about the early Texas settlers and coming in. You talk about frontier history. But of course, the frontier history of the United States covers a broad swath of territory. I mean, at a certain point, you're, you're talking about Appalachia as the frontier. Can you tell us what makes the Texas frontier area so unique as opposed to, say, Kansas or Minnesota or even California? Yeah, so I think first it's the intersection of cultures. We have from, you know, from the east, the Anglo-American or Anglo-Germanic uh, kind of civilization arriving as an intruder. From the south, we have Hispanic culture. And then, of course, a variety of Indian cultures. And they're all intersecting right there uh, initially in east Texas, but really the hill country, uh, south, south Texas, San Antonio area, is going to be the, the zone of collision, if you will. Um, and that's just going to lead to endemic uh, warfare on what is essentially a mounted warfare arena. And the Comanche are the ones who will drive the character of the warfare. Um, if you are not mounted, you cannot compete. Uh, and so the Spanish will adapt in their own way, and then the Texans will show up and learn quickly. So you're talking about adaptation. So let's kind of start at the beginning then. So yeah. these new settlers arrived, they're in East Texas, they're in this fairly unique environment, this clash of cultures. So what kind of military culture, military style do they bring with them when they arrive? Yeah, so they're, they're bringing the kind of very, very uh, well understood settler militia uh, norms. You know, every, every guy in the town joins the, the team. Um, but, but woodland, so Kentucky rifles, Pennsylvania long rifles, and they're well adapted to do, uh, adapt themselves to hit and run warfare in a woodland environment. So, and initially, by the way, those are the ones that, the, the tribes in East Texas are not that dissimilar from the Mississippi culture tribes they'd, they've already faced, uh, you know, in Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee. Um, and so they'll, they'll do quite well against some of these smaller tribes. They actually will, um, they're actually very uh, strategically diplomatic with many of the tribes. So with the Comanche initially, treaties, initially with the, uh, the Cherokee. Um, and Stephen Austin actually will be an astute uh, uh, diplomat as he picks one tribe or another to, to fight, others to uh, have a conciliatory approach. And that will actually allow the tribe to survive. If they initially could have easily been wiped out had they uh, provoked, for example, the Comanche in the wrong way. Okay, now you're talking Stephen F. Austin, so you're talking about the 1820s and the yeah. 1830s. So we're not talking a huge span of time yeah. here. So what are some of the developments that we start to see? Because we go from what sounds to be a very typical kind of Midwest, or, uh, early Eastern uh, kind of uh, colonial warfare to what you will argue later is kind of a distinctly Texan way of war. Yeah. So... But this seems to happen very fast, within about 30 years, which within the span of one person's lifetime, uh, sure. Stephen F. Austin and company. So can you talk us through like 
So Mo, what is changing here and why is it changing if they seem to be so successful? Yeah, so it's changing as the colonies grow rapidly, which brings them into contact with mounted tribes, uh, beginning with the Waco, who are kind of like, they're a mounted tribe. They're not a plains tribe as much as the, you know, the Apache, the Comanche, the Kiowa, but they're still mounted and they move quickly. And, and so as part of my research, it was very interesting to get in the primary sources of the colonists. And they describe uh, as they slowly start getting, you know, okay, like we got to pull some horses. We got to try to follow these guys back to their camp because if you can't anticipate the raid, then the next thing is I got to go to their camp to preempt the raid or, or prevent it from happening again. Uh, and they actually uh, do quite poorly in the early years. Uh, a lot of what the military now calls a dry hole when you show up and the camp is empty. Why? Because everyone knew you were coming um, from miles away. Um, other aspects of the horses being tired or not fed or not just not mobilizing quickly enough. So they have to develop a military culture that requires instantaneous mobilization by every kind of capable male settler, um, which is difficult, right? Because everyone's out farming, hunting, working on things. And at the drop of a hat, the team has to get together in a ranging company and, and go out there and fight. Um, so those are actually all very discrete skills of a frontier cavalryman that they slowly adopt. By 1835, you have them forming full mounted battalions and actually riding uh, you know, many miles away up towards Waco and doing actual expeditionary warfare. So let's drill into this. Let's drill into some of the details. You mentioned that this starts as a frontier militia, right? So it's dude with musket. Yes. How do we go from dude with musket to organized battalions? Uh, so that's Stephen F. Austin uh, responding to the threat. Um, and with larger uh, availability of manpower as as uh, the they break their treaty with Mexico and bring in additional families, um, families without means who are just going to look for, you know, what Stephen F. Austin is dreaming of recreating is, is really Tennessee uh, or, or actually probably more actually Louisiana. He wants a plantation, right. plantation society with, with, a, with lots of slaves, with a planter class, with lots of slaves, with access to the global cotton market. Um, and that's what, that's what they're dreaming of. And they don't want interference by the U.S., or Mexico City, and they're not going to get their way, which is going to lead to the revolution. So, but that he's not going to get that. All kinds of landless people, people who don't have slaves, people who don't have the money to set up a plantation, are just going to show up in Texas and really change the complexion of the the colonies. But that will provide a, a reservoir of men to to be trained. And of course, there's a little bit of natural selection here, where the ones who can't make it, they they're killed off in a lot of uh, kind of just continual warfare. A couple detail questions from what you've been talking about. Um, you keep saying colonies. Yeah. So are these dispersed colonies with no real overarching governance beyond the government of Mexico City 1,500 miles away? No, they're, they, are, they are dispersed. Um, they're individual empresario. That's the title of a, a guy who makes a deal with Mexico um, to have a piece of land and settle families on that. I'm sure he's taking a cut on the side. Um, and so Stephen F. Austin has just the biggest of them. But he'll end up being the, the leading guy, and he'll, he'll coordinate the first multi-colony expeditions where they unite militias from different towns in single expeditions under a single commander. And that's part of the growth of their military capability. Um, and that, that growth is essential because as they're going to need it when they finally encounter the Comanche. So second question for to bring out some detail. 
we, we've got this notion that we need to create more coherent militia, militia units. We still just have dude showing up with musket, right? Yep. So are we, are we starting to move to the more professional system where maybe the government's providing equipment, or is it just people show up with what they have and you train as well as you can? This 100% uh, the latter. This is a amateur militia, uh, and it, like, just like in Kentucky or Appalachia, the, the weapon of choice, the Kentucky rifle, is actually their hunting rifle. So a lot, you'll see a lot of the vocational stuff be reapplied for warfare. Um, you have to have a horse because Texas is so big to move between the colonies if you want to do commerce. Now that's my horse for combat. Um, and so you'll see a lot of this uh, vocational repurposing. Same thing, exact same thing that had happened with the Spanish on their frontier in San Antonio, uh, La Bahia, where these vaqueros, these ranchers, uh, actually picked up their own version of the Texas Rangers um, in, in decades before the Anglos arrived. And that's a good point you bring up as well, because, you know, I grew up in Texas. The way this story is told, essentially, is that Stephen F. Austin manifested himself with a bunch of white people, and there were no other people in Texas. But the reality is there were also lots of people of, of um, tribal, mestizo, and Hispanic yeah. descent, too, correct? That's right. Just like elsewhere in, the, in, the, in, in New Spain or Mexico, you have a lot of mixing of racial hierarchy. Um, and But there is one key difference we would want to be clear on is that the Spanish colonial experiment is basically a failure. Um, they What we have, have in just a few settlements in San Antonio, La Bahia, out in Nacogdoches, that's not what they're envisioning. They want a robust economic powerhouse up there, and they don't get that, in part because of uh, the land isn't as arable as they want, but also the Comanche just terrorized the entire frontier. And, and make it to where it's not an attractive place to settle. So let's. So we're talking about this transition from the dude with rifle shows up into full-up mountain battalions. Is there an inciting incident? Is there like a massacre where they lose an entire village or town? Or is this just a uh, steady progression of raid, counter-raid? Over, In other words, are they growing over time? Or is there a shock incident that occurs that forces uh, the Tejanos or the Americans to uh, kind of take up arms and change their military culture. So the, the shock incidents like you're talking about, the invasions, won't happen until after the Texas Revolution. Again, when the Texas Republic grapples with the full might of the Comanche Empire, they'll get hit with raids of six, seven, eight hundred warriors who will shatter their defenses all the way to the coast, Lineville, Victoria, um, but that's later. Early on, it is just a progression of small-scale raids. Yet when you're a small militia, a small colonial settlement, everything seems right, like a big deal. When the when the ho homestead next to you is massacred, that's incentive to to get up and get after it. When people are shooting you, it's always high intensity. It it is. Um, and so, by the way, the the first incident they'll run into is when in I think it's 1822 when the first guys are there with Austin. They're setting up their first camp. And they're ambushed on the Colorado River by a cannibal tribe, Karankalas. Um, and so that's their kind of welcome to Tejas. Yeah, and, and uh, you had mentioned, and I think it's also important to point out, um, this is not happening in a vacuum. This is not just colonists colonizing a space that has indigenous people in it. There's also a government, a regional government. Mm -hmm. uh, is it in Matamoros? Uh, it, 
at different times it's out of uh, Satia or, but at this time it's actually out of San Antonio. Okay, so there's a regional government, and then there, of course, is the national government of Mexico City. Yep. So if I'm if I'm again remembering correctly, there's a big fight during this period over centralizing versus federalizing forces, and you got this this great specter of Santa Ana who's kind of trying to seize his own power. Sure. So as these Texian settlers are grappling with the, their um, you know, building their settlement and dealing with the indigenous people. Uh, what what are the pressures being put on them from the south? Well, there's initially none. They're they're kind of given exemption on taxes. They're they're not really required to serve in the militia initially. But later on, there is a a national militia act that they will ostensibly be a part of. But it's it's not you know the, the, they're not being dragooned in the service. Now there is an incident uh, called the Fredonian Rebellion. It's in the late 1820s out of Nacogdoches where a bunch of the whites rebel and say, they're basically, it's an abortive Texas revolution. And Stephen Austin actually marches with the, the uh, Mexican garrison to put it down. So he's, a, he's proven himself to be a faithful citizen of Mexico. They're actually, they've sworn allegiance. They've promised to be Catholic. Um, and so by rights, this is actually Mexican history we're talking about, not even U.S. history because They've, they've joined the Mexican uh, country. You, you brought up something interesting. You said the Mexican garrison. So we've been talking about the settler militias. We've been talking about guys showing up with rifles. But what is the Mexican national government's military presence there? And how much of a role do they play in this interaction and perhaps development of the, uh, of the Texas forces? So the, the, the Spanish government had a long history of trying different, um, different methods for... Bringing, bringing peace to the frontier. Including outright genocide. Outright genocide, deep expeditions into Texas with, with battles and destroying camps, but it, it doesn't work. Uh, you know, the, these large tribes out there, they're just too fast. They're, uh, their methods are just superior. And so by the time the Anglos are arriving, the Spanish have really retrenched just into these Presidio garrisons and really in San Antonio, La Bahia. Um, and they're not, they're not doing a lot of like wide-ranging patrols. Um, it's a very defensive approach. And by the way, the, the, by this time, the Presidios are just not that good either. So at, there's actual primary sources making fun of them for the, their cavalry in full plate armor with spears mustering out of the gate of the, the fort to try to chase down the Comanche, and it's, it's a joke. But the ranchers do respond. The vaqueros respond, and that's when you have these flying companies. And these are kind of paramilitary volunteer horsemen, and, uh, and they do actually, they are the predecessors of the Texas Rangers, and they are able to match the Comanche. Yeah, and this is also at the same time when a lot of the uh, European kind of second-wave colonial forces are doing the exact same things, French and Algeria, flying yeah. cavalry columns supported by artillery. Right. Yeah, that's, a, that's the, an interesting. The other uh, aspect I would want to mention, too, is that the Indians, of course, are not a coherent, uniform uh, force, right? They're all taking sides. So the Comanche, I'm sorry, the Apache are initially adversaries with the Mexicans. They'll become friends against the Comanche, and they will actually join the Texans and be auxiliaries to the Texas Rangers. The Tonkawas, and really, I believe, in the Hill Country, they will also join the Texans. Um, so, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and the Comanche have really terrorized all the tribes and exerted this hegemony, and so some of the other other tribes are looking for payback. So let's kind of take this just a step further as we're kind of playing with this. So we've got 
small, relatively ineffective Spanish right or Mexican regulars, Spanish, depending on when we're talking about, right? Uh, so small, ineffective Mexican regulars. Well, ineffective for raiding warfare. For raiding warfare. Yeah. And you have the Vaqueros, the, uh, the kind of the uh, Mexican nationals who are uh, forming these flying companies. And then you have the Anglos coming out. So it sounds like the regulars are kind of fairly out of the picture. So can you talk about the uh, intermix, if intermixing, uh, if there is any, and kind of this fusion you have between the Anglos and the uh, and the uh, Mexican uh, people who are kind of kind of coming together? Are they coming together? Are they sharing notes, or is this you're over here and I'm over here and we're gonna do our own thing? They they are absolutely joining forces. In fact, several leading families from San Antonio will be signers on the. Texas Republic's Declaration of Independence. Uh, Juan Seguin, uh, namesake of the town, he'll be a colonel of cavalry um, in the Texas, the Texian army um, early on, out, and he'll be also, I believe, be the mayor of San Antonio at the same time. Uh, and so initially, this is a uh, combined Anglo uh, Tejano coalition. Um, the early Texas Ranger companies under Jack Hayes, some of these kind of famed uh, you know, gunfighters, they, they will have Hispanics in, in their company. They're, they're just rangers. A um, little later, you'll start to see a little bit of a separation. Um, there's an incident. It's called the, inv- you know, uh, the Mexican invasion of Texas in 1842. They occupy San Antonio. And a lot of the Tejanos join the, the, the invading army. Um, and the, Texan, the white Texans don't forget after they win the Battle of Salado Creek eject the Mexican army back across the Rio Grande, then they turn around and their scores yep. to settle. And so you'll see con- uh, a real divergence after that. Yeah, so before we get there, and that, that's a topic to return to, um, the, the, the elephant in this room is the Texas Independence War, right? Yeah. So we have this building up for about 15 years, 1835, it all boils over, yeah. and the Texians start fighting for independence. Uh, so how do they convert frontier, militia, mobile warfare to fighting the regulars that Santa Ana and the other Mexican generals bring to Texas? So this is, uh, this is actually the story of my master's thesis uh, in that the first step is that the, the various um, colonies coming together to fight Indians sets, creates the unity, the common bonds that will be required to create the army of Texas which is actually just a bunch of militiamen who, who are angry and march on San Antonio. Um, later on, they think the war's over, they've won, and then Santa Ana's gonna show up, take down the Alamo, and then march into East Texas. And that army that Houston has to put together, um, you know, they, they are aping kind of uh, Western, uh, you know, from the United States, really European standards. So they have a couple of numbered infantry regiments, they have a cavalry battalion, but they're all amateurs. You do have a sprinkling of U.S. Army vets in, in the ranks. Houston himself is a, a veteran of uh, the War of 1812, New Orleans. Um, but really, they're, they're just doing the best they can to, to do what they think organized warfare looks like. So let's talk a little bit about Sam Houston. Uh, who is he? You mentioned he has war experience. Why, why is it this guy who's appointed to try to turn these militiamen into something that looks like an army? Yeah, well, he shows up uh, with a, a pretty uh, strong reputation. He's Andrew Jackson's guy, um, who's, of course, the president. Uh, 
but also he's been the militia commander, the commander of the Tennessee militia, the governor of Tennessee. So he and, and he's a big guy. He's he's masculine, and so he's a leading candidate. And they choose him. You're you're going to be the general, and at first he's the general of nothing. Um, you know, part of this garrison is trapped in the Alamo. A big chunk are going to be massacred at Goliad. And so he has to put together this army. And so it's a fascinating thing where he's putting it together as he retreats. He's got a bunch of criticism from his colonels saying, no, we need to stand and fight. And he keeps retreating. And this is one of the great mysteries is what was his plan? And uh, afterwards, he kind of writes, he says, I didn't tell anyone what I was after. And if I erred, it was I would own it. But, uh, you know, we don't really know. Was he counting on Santa Ana to make a mistake, which is what happens? Was he moving to the Louisiana border where there happened to be a U.S. brigade sitting there that, and he knew the commander trying to draw in the U.S. into the war? Um, what we know is that he couldn't defeat the Mexican army. They had to make a mistake, and they give him that mistake. So when you, you talk about training, what exactly does Sam Houston train these militiamen on? Is he just pulling out the, you know, 1820 U.S. Army drill book, or, or what's happening? Yeah, something like that. I mean, marching, shouldering the rifle. Uh, volley aim, but I mean, it's a stretch to really call them an army. There, there is no tradition. There's no spree. I mean, they have a, their own spree de corps as Texans as as rebels, but they're not part of an institution. And and so of course the great miracle of this war is uh, Santa Ana does make the great mistake. He literally is caught sleeping at yeah. San Jacinto um, and ambushed. Right. It's not really and a well, the real mistake is he. He gets word that the Texan um, Revolutionary Committee is fleeing to the coast, and he he takes a picked battalion of, you know, a, a great you know a light infantry battalion that's awesome, chases him down, thinks he can get decapitate the what he would call an insurgency or rebellion, and Houston will corner him at uh, San Jacinto right there in the river, um, cut destroy the bridge, and then force an engagement. So Santa Ana has about four thousand men in Texas. Houston is maybe 900-ish. Um, he can't win against that army, but Santa Ana will give him the opportunity for an engagement on comparable terms. And they do capture Santa Ana. And right? then they capture him. Yep. And, and Houston, of course, uh, learning the one of the great rules about Revolutionary War is sometimes all you have to do is stay alive. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, you know, a, a fascinating case study in strategic patience and strategy. Um, Santa Ana's doing his own strategy, which uh, I think is quite actually... I think he's trying to emulate Napoleon. He has three columns sweeping across Texas. I don't, and there's a plan to kind of converge on the other side. Um, any one of his columns can, is actually big enough to defeat Houston. Um, so I mean, he just he gives the the one thing that would allow Houston to win. He he accommodates himself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the the Texians take him captive. They sign this treaty, which would not be a legally binding treaty, but whatever. Under duress. Right, yeah. right, right. So by in 1836, the Republic of Texas is created. It will exist for nine years until early 1845. Um, so how then do we transition, or do we transition this frontier militia now that it's a national militia? Well, they try. They try on two occasions to create a standing nation-state army. But the problem is they have no money. Um, they have no resources. They're borrowing everything on debt. They have creditors in New Orleans and other places. Um, so it's it's kind of a, this, this goes back to that tension where they know they have to fight the Comanche all the time. They know sometimes they might have to fight the Mexicans and you have to be ready for that. 
and they'll they'll struggle with both and they'll vacillate from having something kind of like a regular army but then they can't pay for it they'll vacillate towards larger national militia structure so like a, in a, a inactive reserve that you activate to eventually they'll settle on just a um, elite Texas Ranger screen out on the frontier that will patrol, engage, and then hopefully give time for the citizen militia to, to be raised. So if you were to put like a tag on it, like the Texan way of war, right prior to right prior to them joining the United States, yeah, how would you describe this and how would it be different from the standard European approach or the or the Comanche approach. What makes it uniquely Texan? Yeah. So first, it's uh, it's cavalry centric. So there is no infantry tradition in Texas. So when you have these famous infantry regiments in Lee's army, they're an anomaly. Um, you know, Texans join the Civil War to be cavalry, and that's part of the tradition that develops, which is driven by frontier necessity. The people they're fighting are cavalry. You have to be cavalry to fight them wide open spaces between living areas. Um, you know, there is no real large-scale combat between divisions and corps to be had. Uh, and so small engagements between, um, you know, between a Texas Ranger company and an Indian war band will ha can have strategic consequence over a vast space. Um, so that's, that's going to drive the tradition. So I would say, if I had to define it, cavalry-centric, it's amateur in nature, and event-specific, meaning Texans don't go to, or Americans don't go to Texas to be in the Army. Nobody wants to be in the Army at that time. It's not a good life. Uh, I shouldn't say nobody, but some officers, but generally enlisted, right? And so they go to Texas and only fight when they have to, and then they want to stake their claim and be landowners. Now, let's dig into the cavalry tradition just yeah. for a minute, because we have a Napoleonic scholar in the room, <laughs> and we have a Texas scholar in the room, and then we have a... 19th and 20th American <laughs> military history scholar in the room. So let's drill down. Like when you say cavalry, are we talking mounted combat with the arm blanc, you know, with sabers yeah. and um, pikes, lances? With yeah. lances? Are we talking mounted with revolvers? Are we talking moving mounted, dividing dismounted with carbines yeah. and rifles? What are we talking about? So initially, here? it's it's the last thing you said. It's mounted infantry. Uh, because Kentucky rifle turns out isn't a great weapon from on top of a horse. You can't aim it. Pistols aren't that great back then. The either. the single shot pistol also not good. And by the way, they're facing uh, an opponent who can fire ten arrows in the space of, with more accuracy, I might add, in the space of uh, reloading a gun. Uh, and so there, the tactic of choice becomes: you make contact with an Indian uh, force, seek the closest. Uh, fortified position, dismount, someone in the back holds the horses and they get down in the prone with their Kentucky rifle and do well-aimed shots at a controlled rate of fire. This is some of the interesting tactics that they describe. You'll have a ranger captain, he's actually controlling the rate of fire because the worst fear, everyone fires and then there's a gap where the Indians can charge. And Of course, real, real briefly, this is of course standard American horse cavalry right. doctrine right. throughout the 19th century. Yeah. Um, but this will change. In the late 1830s, Texans, one of the, the marks in history that they will make is they introduce the world to revolving combat power. In a, the first, I would say, practical form. It's been out there a little bit in different inventors, but there's a guy in, uh, in New York, New Jersey, named Sam Colt. He can't find anyone to buy his newfangled uh, finicky pistol, 
And the Texans are just desperate enough that they'll give it a shot. Um, and they do. And it changes, it, it does change warfare because overnight, a company of 20 Texans can defeat 100 Comanche in a battle. And they do. And then they're going to bring that weapon as auxiliaries down to the Mexican War, where the U.S. Army hires them to do a bunch of their mounted work. And it'll, they'll introduce the whole the whole world sees it. Okay, so how does that change it? So how do I go from all of a sudden I've got yeah. to use that single-shot rifle to all of a sudden now I've got this quirky revolving pistol and now yeah. I'm defeating many times my number? So the one of the tactical differences, I don't have to dismount now. They, they can ride straight in get at close range, and then start dropping other riders from their horses, uh, two pistols you know, at a time, uh, and no cavalry in the world will stand for that. Yeah, and so you've mentioned these Texas Rangers several times as kind of the elite, maybe even professional side of this, this yeah. force. So where do the Texas Rangers come from? Yeah, so when it's kind of a, a, a term that's used by a lot of Texans at that time. Uh, but really, we could look at it as there's variations. You have uh, a very, what I would call, elite, not socially elite, but militarily elite uh, cast of just a few companies out on the frontier. And this is, these are, the reason they're so good is these are the guys that survived. Um, there's a ranger that, in his memoir, he says half of the rangers die every year in combat, uh, probably in the early 1840s, the, as the Texas Republic is, is fully grappling with the Comanche. Um, but at the same time, every town, county has their own ranger. These, it's best to think of these more as Minutemen, militia, but they all call themselves rangers eventually. So there's no formal ranger force yet? Uh, the, well, the first formal one named is actually by Austin. So they, they are calling them rangers. They've adopted explicitly this term from the East Coast, brought over from England. You know, Rogers Rangers, they, they know exactly what a ranger does. They put him on a horse. Then they give them a, revol a revolver. And at what point do they decide that these men who, who are engaged in the fight constantly, at what point do they transition from them basically being the trainers and the commanders for these militia units? Uh, sometimes that happens when there's a larger militia confrontation. Um, you know, and where we really see it is in the Mexican War. The Probably about six, seven Texan volunteer regiments will be recruited for that war and the captains are mostly rangers. Uh, remember, this is the time of kind of militant democracy where uh, captains, lieutenants are chosen by the units themselves. They're elected, and it's based off your uh, reputation as a, as a combat uh, soldier. And so a young guy like Jack Hayes, who's in his early 20s, he will be selected to command any unit he shows up in, and he earns it, and he's very, very, he, that's all he does is fight. So is these men's experience, uh, is it purely practical? Are some of them, do they have experience in kind of a traditional American or European style line unit, or is it just all earned? Well, I identified a sprinkling of U.S. Army vets in the early militia, but as we look at it, uh, really it's, um, these are young guys that show up and are making their fortune. And this is a young man's game, by the way. Incredible physical endurance is required to do this, they they don't bring pack animals. They don't bring. I mean, they just are sleeping on the ground in the forest. In their and let's let's also put in, bear in mind that even a U.S. Army veteran in 1830, there's really been one sort of <laughs> military conflict the U.S. Army can claim, and we didn't do very well on it. It was 1812. 
West Point at this point is barely getting off the ground. There's, uh, we're probably up to a couple hundred graduates by the 1830s. Um, So even if they have U.S. Army training, that's not going to count for a lot, correct? Sure. Um, What we do have, though, so there's a, that's where Houston comes in. He's one of the few recognized veterans, actual real combat. Um, and so that's going to make his selection kind of common sense. But one of the interesting factors is most of these young men have not been in the Army. They were not old enough to fight in the War of 1812, but their fathers were. So this is Jackson's crew, his team that goes back to, you know, around the Hermitage in Tennessee, and their sons will come to Texas. Um, and so you have the example of Jack Hayes. His father is, one, is pals in the line. He's in the line at New Orleans right next to Houston. They're pals working for Jackson. He's going to show up. In te- his son, Jack Hayes, will show up in Texas with a letter, gives it to Hayes. Hey, my dad said to give this to you. And Hayes will place him in the cavalry. Um, and so you have a lot of these guys are inheriting these, these very you know, robust uh, military traditions of, of you know, tying masculinity to military service when needed, fighting yeah. for you and yours, but not really wanting to serve in the regular army. What I'm getting there from this is that Rangers are best as cavalry. Of course. As, as the two <laughs> cavalry officers in the room will, will agree <laughs> That's <to>. right. <laughs> yeah, so you had mentioned earlier um, a couple of points I think worth coming back to. One, these Rangers, uh, this kind of quasi-formal organization, you mentioned it's not just white, right? There's plenty of people sure. of, of Hispanic heritage in it. And two, you mentioned this incident in, in 1842 where the Mexicans returned to invade. So can you walk us through that a little bit and how this cavalry tradition plays in that? Yeah, so you have uh, you have sometimes an all-Hispanic ranger company, sometimes uniting with an all-Caucasian. Uh, all sometimes they're mixed. Um, you have Indian auxiliaries always present. None of the rangers can do what they do, at least early on, without advice and assistance from Indian scouts, who also serve in an assault capacity as well. In fact, Hayes becomes famous for his partnership with a uh, Apache chief, um, and they, you know, they they go into battle together. So these are very multi-ethnic companies. Um, but later on, of course, the the Mexican invasion will complicate things when many of the citizenry of San Antonio kind of whether they had they want to go with Mexico that some of them are already experiencing dis, uh, dis, discrimination especially from the new arrivals from the United States who were not there at the kind of the the golden age moment when they together defeated Mexico not, not realizing that these people who are not white are the original yeah, Texans that's prior right. to of course you have the original original yeah. indigenous Texans or that just they were at San Jacinto yeah. right there's they're part of the Texas Republic so you, some of that's taking off, but I think a lot of it is just, you know, Seguin was a Mexican army officer. He probably puts his finger in the wind, sees which ways it's going, and picks the what turns out to be the wrong side. And so he'll be called a traitor afterwards. Um, and it looks to me that, it, just looking at the names on Texas Ranger rolls, more and more after that you have, and, and by the way, Anglo immigration is, is just exploding, so they don't need they don't need the alliance. That's a lot of it's practical, practical necessity. I wouldn't pretend that most of these settlers from Louisiana, Tennessee, southern states, uh, you know, view Hispanics as their their uh, social ethnic equal. It's it's or a lot of it equal, or right. religious equal. They they despise Catholics. Many of them are Protestant. Um, so a lot of it is an alliance of convenience. And once you have 
uh, you know, 50,000 Texans rush in, you don't need that alliance. So uh, in, in the, the, this uh, Mexican army expedition and its defeat, how did the Texans fight off this 1842 invasion? Yeah, so um, it's actually, so there's a, a French mercenary named Adrian Wool, I believe, is leading the, uh, the Mexican army, and he's very skillful. He, he maneuvers off-road and takes San Antonio by surprise. Very skillful, and in fact, it's one of Jack Hayes's, the Texas Ranger on patrol. One of his uh, few failures, he fails to anticipate until till it's too late, and so he has to evacuate the town. Um, so then later on, though the Texas militia, militia north of San Antonio starts to form. The word goes out. All these various company, you know, ranger companies, rifle companies start to congregate, and under uh, and, and they'll unite and they'll take a defensive position at Salado Creek place it's north of San Antonio um, and the uh, you know it's it's a good position so the Mexicans have to assault and they do they use you know full kind of massed ranks they got cannon they got cavalry um, and there's also uh, an unfortunate incident where one of the companies who's marching late to arrive is intercepted by Mexican cavalry and they're slaughtered so there's already some of the you know it's it's some of this, what started in Texas Revolution right, with remember Goliad, so. that's that's going to add to that, which is going to be contribute a lot of the enmity in the Mexican War by Texan volunteers, by the way. So, anyways, they they do kind of what we talked talked earlier. They establish a defensive line and they use precision firepower and decimate the Mexican ranks. They try to flank them, and but there's woods on either side, and the Mexican flank flanking uh, elements greeted by a bunch of shotguns in the woods. And so that doesn't work, and eventually Wool retreats, and then he's chased out of Texas. Because the, there's some unique operational challenges to operating, particularly out in southern Texas, the San Antonio region, yeah. getting up into the hill country, and then south towards the Mexican border. Can you talk through, like, what are the specific operational challenges that they're having to face in that area? Yeah, the, the first being it's the arid environment. That's This is what's new. It's... Um, water water can be scarce. It's, it's very hot in the summer, as anyone who's been there knows. Um, so just imagine the Mexicans are marching in, in armor, plate armor on their chest, helmets with spears. Um, you know, Texans are wearing buckskin. And uh, so it's still in some ways is a lucky victory, victory just, like, uh, just like San Jacinto. Um, the Mexicans do the one thing the Texans need them to do, which is uh, try to assault a fortified position. Yeah, and, and uh, an interesting aspect of both conflicts, the original 35-36 Independence War and then the 42 incident, um, what are the Comanche doing during this? Um, I mean, they, they're they just waiting in the wings. Um, they, they've, I think by then they have commenced open warfare with the Tex Republic, but um, they are wary of, uh, uh, they're wary of, Provoking what what will come later, which is, I guess, a, um, a a real attritional contest. So what what we have, you may be alluding to the council house fight, where uh, a bunch of tribe tribesmen go to San Antonio to make peace. Actually, they've been fighting. They're both sides are losing a lot of people, and uh, they walk in uh, into this uh, house in San Antonio where the Tex Republic has sent its diplomats, and they have a Anglo girl who all scarred up. I believe her nose was cut off. And so the the Texas commissioners say, we want the other captives. 
And then they tell all these chiefs they're not leaving, turns into a fight, and they kill them all. The Anglos kill all the chiefs. And so the, during this, uh, that's going to lead to an interval where the Comanche will pull back, regroup, and then they'll launch the Great Comanche Raid, which I spoke of earlier, which proves the inadequacy of the Texan kind of strategic defense where these raiders, it's about six, 700, go right through the screen, all the way to San, all the way down to Victoria. Uh, they start raiding warehouses. There's indications they have a Mexican uh, guide who knows exactly where to take them, where these stores are, because they, they beeline right for uh, where the ships are unloading. You know. So you have this spectacle of all these uh, Indians with top hats and, and, and all this kind of um, odd kind of accoutrements and clothing. And so what happens is they're loaded down with stolen horses. They've killed some, some people. Most of the population of the city, uh, I think it's Victoria, uh, jumps on boats and they're watching their town be pillaged from, from the water. Um, so as the Indians are retreating back to the plains, they make a mistake. They, they change their approach by having too much, uh, you know, too much uh, spoils. They're, they're slow, they're, they're encumbered, and that allows the Texan militia to gather, vector in on them, you'll have the battle of uh, Plum Creek where the, the militia will assault them and really uh, defeat them. So we, we've now got a Republic of Texas with lots of problems, right? We've Many. got problems with the Comanche, got problems with Mexico. Uh, the treaty is immediately abrogated by the Mexican government, which yeah. is in chaos for most of this period. They don't agree on where, the, where any boundaries should be. Um, the, the state is, the, 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 is drowning in debt. So by seven, or excuse me, by 1845, Texas is accepted as an American state. Correct. So how does that change this frontier militia? And especially given that you now have the resources of this massive American state, how does it change the issue of the Comanche? Yeah, so the Texans are happy for the U.S. Army to come in and make it their problem. Um, but the U.S. Army will come in and remember they haven't been really tangling with this kind of mounted tribe before or as much, some, some in the north, uh, you know, uh, maybe Wisconsin, but uh, the U.S. Army will basically fail. It's, they're going to put some infantry outposts, their cavalry is not fast enough, and so the Texans will, the Texas state government will pretty much maintain its own paramilitary force to do what they see as necessary that the U.S. Army is unable to do. Because bear in mind during this time frame, the U.S. Army's got, what, two regiments of dragoons, not full strength, yeah. and, the, and a regiment of mounted riflemen, yeah. uh, also not full strength. Right. And that has to cover the entire western perimeter. Yeah, so you end up with this awkward situation where you have these U.S. Army garrisons. Uh, first, it's a line of forts kind of bisecting Texas north to south. Eventually, they'll push another line out. Um, and it just doesn't work. The Comanche ride around the forts and go to the raiding uh, target. Um, and then it's some interesting tensions between state and federal authorities. This is pre-Civil War, so the federal government hasn't asserted its dominance quite as much yet. No 14th Amendment um, yet. Nothing. And so these Texas Ranger companies will raid up into Indian Territory. They'll raid across the border into Mexico, and the U.S. Army's frustrated. They can't really stop them, but they don't help them. But eventually you'll have U, uh, U.S. Army, in particular the 2nd Dragoons, I'm sorry, the 2nd Cavalry in the northern, north of Dallas will start to emulate, and they will learn from the Texas Rangers how to do a long-distance raid against the Comanche, and 
And again, this is the dark logic of frontier warfare. If I can't stop the most mobile fleet cavalry in the world, then I'm going to go to their camps and you're get gonna, them before them. them. That's right. Which is actually causing, uh, talking U.S. Army history for a minute, this actually causes the creation of the next two cavalry regiments, yeah. which are the first and second cavalry regiments, yeah. which will be renumbered the fourth and fifth cavalry regiments. But these are new model uh, units that are a kind of a hybrid between a dragoon, yeah. a, mount, uh, a truly mounted warrior, and a mounted rifleman. They're kind of a hybrid uh, force. And they're seen as kind of an elite, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I also want to just mention, there's also an inter interesting anecdote in 1859. So, um, you know, after the Mexican War, Texas is a, is a U.S. state, where one of the Texas Rangers is asked to arrest an Anglo settler. Uh, this is somewhere near Dallas, who has killed an Indian family or something. Um, and the Ranger refuses. He says, no, I'm not a marshal. I'm not a civil. That's a civil matter. I'm a military officer. And that's a good demonstration that the, these Texas Rangers see themselves as, as military cavalry until after the Civil War. And that's interesting, of course, because now, today, the Texas Rangers are purely a police force. Yes. Uh, so let's let's back up a bit and talk about the Mexican War, because we've yeah. kind of been headed there. So the Mexican War starts in large part because of Texas. There's other issues, but Texas is a major cause, including the posting of an American army unit uh, under Zachary Taylor mm -hmm. in what's known as the Nueces Strip. An army of observation. Right. <laughs> it's observing parts of the country that may or may not be parts yeah. of the country. Um, it, so how then does this um, frontier tradition go big? Now that we have the first big war that America's fighting in a generation, and it is involving Texas and Texans. So how, yeah. so how does this tradition play into So the, the professionals, the U.S. Army, they march, as you said, down to the, uh, down to the Rio Grande and essentially provoke a confrontation, um, it, which is ironic because the confrontation is actually about California. Um, that's what Polk is after is the deep water ports and uh, gateways to the east. But Texas is going to be the means to get there. And uh, so what's ironic is the, the U.S. Army disdains volunteers at this time. They, they, did, they were not satisfied coming out of the War of 1812 with the performance of the militias and the volunteers. Uh, so Taylor initially doesn't want their help. Um, the first engagement in the Mexican War is going to wipe out half of his cavalry when the second dragoons are ambushed. Um, and he's going to find out very quickly that the Mexicans have a rich uh, lancer uh, tradition. These mounted soldiers that are ex that excel with uh, mounted combat with spears, with carbines, um, a little bit of an aristocratic tradition there too, uh, kind of stemming from Europe. Um, and so he, he's going to figure out real quick, I need some help. And by the way, the Dragoon's horses start dying left and right because they're, they're not climatized for uh, the Southwest. And so he's going to you know, write to the Texas governor through the Secretary of War and request uh, which is normal at that time, that the state raise a couple regiments and then they'll be federalized under U.S. Army control, which is actually happening all over the U.S. It's just that the Texans know how to do this warfare. And so initially he's going to use the Texans to do his reconnaissance for him in front of his army uh, all, the way, all the way to uh, Monterey. Before Buena Vista, Texans will be out. They'll identify Santa Ana's army and kind of save the day by giving him an advance notice and not be surprised, and he moves his army 
to defendable ground. If I'm remembering correctly, at Buena Vista, he's outnumbered but better positioned. That's right. He And he has actually a volunteer army. Winfield Scott has taken most of his regulars for the invasion of central Mexico, so it's mostly volunteer regiments, and so he puts them in good ground, and he still barely wins. Um, but he credits uh, Texas Ranger Ben McCullough for um, getting out and identifying the approaching, Santa Ana's approaching army. Um, after kind of before and after Buena Vista though, the, you know, the Texans are fantastic when you're doing high, high intensity combat. They work, they're very good at reconnaissance. There's great anecdotes about these Texans getting out in front. They'll capture a Mexican messenger or something and be able to read the correspondence because they know sp they're fluent in Spanish. Many of them are married to, to Mexican women in San Antonio. Um, and so that actually makes them, they're bringing a regional specialty and contributing it to the combined arms approach of the U.S. Army. Um, with their revolvers, they'll be exceptionally lethal. They'll actually be used as recon forces, but then assault troops against Monterey. You know, the proud U.S. Army general takes the volunteers and puts them in front. And you could say, oh, well, that's, you know, they're using them as cannon fodder, and they're not. That's the pride of place. And they're right there with the 5th Infantry, uh, other infantry regiments, and they, they take down the fort. In fact, they instruct the U.S. Army how to do house-to-house -house fighting once they get in the city, because they've done that before in San Antonio, Laredo, some of the other towns. Um, so they will add a special capability, but then it will kind of, um, you know, you'll, you'll get the other side of, of these volunteers. Once Taylor spreads out to occupy northern Mexico, and he can't control these guys, and then you see the atrocities start to happen, the raids, uh, the, you know, some, some of the better Texans go home. The new arrivals are, are not um, closely supervised by, by the ranger captains. Who, and some of them are probably just criminals. Many of them. And, and there's a lot of enmity, right? Texas is still small enough where many of them actually have relatives, friends who die at Goliad or other massacres, where, um, of course, Santa Ana executes everyone as pirates who is a rebel. Yeah, so so we have then this this kind of as you mentioned regional specialty greatly benefiting Taylor's army. Um, do we see Texans used elsewhere in the war? Do they end up serving you know Santa Fe campaign, California, Veracruz, or is it just yeah, under Taylor? They don't they don't go to California, but they so Scott he invades via Veracruz, takes down the the fortified city, marches on Mexico City, and then finds himself in the same boat. He needs mounted mounted soldiers, he needs mobility, and so he again will write to the Texas governor, send me a regiment, and this is a regiment that was actually going to go down and reinforce Taylor, it's diverted, um, and it's under Jack Hayes, so this would be one of the best regiments, um, because his reputation draws the best frontiersmen. Um, so they're going to arrive in Veracruz, and that's where something interesting happens, that's kind of unique. Um, so if we back up a little bit, in the first campaign under Taylor, they have the first uh, iteration of Colts, the Patterson Colt. It's a finicky weapon, five shot, 36 caliber, uh, but it's still better by a factor of five than anything anyone else is shooting. Um, and so one of the Rangers, a guy named Sam Walker, he's going to say, that was pretty good. They all think the campaign's over, by the way, after they take Monterey. And he, so he kind of lets him go, let, you know, leaves the service, and he goes to New York City, meets with Sam Colton, gives it actually battlefield feedback. This is how you can make it better. And Sam Colt will redesign it. The second, he will actually overcompensate and make a giant revolver called the Walker Colt, 
which is so big you can hit somebody with it. It's called a horse pistol. It's so heavy, it has to go in a horse, uh, you know, uh, a holster on the side of the horse. Um, and you know, this is experimentation. Well, that new model, which will then be funded by by the government, uh, the first shipment will meet Hayes's regiment in Veracruz. So they'll pick these things up and just annihilate the Mexican insurgency or guerrilla resistance is better better termed. Um, you know, the again, Mexicans have a proud culture. This is, by the way, how they ousted Spain. This mounted warfare, uh, just like with the Comanche, a, a small number of Texans will ride into a, a regiment of lancers and just start dropping them from their horses. It's, it's very, very loud, so there's a psychological aspect. And again, this is designed to be a pistol. It's 44 caliber, six shot. It is designed to kill someone one shot. Um, and so this is going to be, again, that debut of everyone. In, there's observers, international observers, Europeans there. You have Mexican officers on the receiving end. You have the U.S. Army officers working with the Texans. Everyone's going to see this. In a short time, Sam Cole will be the richest man in North America. So this is a, a good time to kind of um, transition to concluding all of this. Both of you are cavalry officers. So this is a question to both of you. What antecedents of modern U.S. cavalry do we see in this kind of Texas frontier tradition? I'll start with you, Dr. Nance. One of the key things is like uh, I was immediately struck when you started talking about the Colt horse, revol horse revolvers and uh, in Mexico is that became standard U.S. Army doctrine for the mounted assault all the way to the point where we stopped using horses. Uh, they had in the doctrine, they still had the stirrup to stirrup, draw saber, and charge. It was in the doctrine, but it was mainly a sop to the people that read way too much uh, They read Napoleon novels. is what yeah. they're reading. Uh, but really, what they actually did was, uh, most times was, it was called a charge as foragers. And it was a dispersed charge with the saber planted firmly in its uh, scabbard and kept there. And at the time, and uh, the, the last incarnation of this, before we gave up our horses, with the, with the 1911 45 caliber pistol, semi-automatic, that you would draw and you would uh, basically brace across yourself aiming to the left of the horse's head so you don't scare the horse uh, and laying down a barrage of fire in front of you as you went. So it's interesting that you see the Texan cavalry develop this that then becomes U.S. Army doctrine all the way until when we dismount the U.S. Horse Cavalry in 1942 and oh by the way we still keep that mounted assault marching fire with modern uh, with modern warfare of course technology has changed so i don't know how far you could pull that pull that thread before it just becomes silly but i could take it at least till 1942 with horses yeah so I, i'll take us back to taylor's invading mexico he needs a cavalry force in the front this is the first time that probably full american field armies are doing offensive maneuvers invasion of another country and that requires a mounted force out front to do route reconnaissance, deflect enemy reconnaissance. Um, and, and so the, the Rangers are going to do that for them. And that's foreshadowing the modern role of U.S. cavalry, which will explode in the Civil War as you, know, you have divisions and corps that have to shape the area around them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to aggregate the cavalry into brigades and divisions and corps. Um, so the Texans are foreshadowing that in some of their uh, some of their actions. 
And I, I'll ask you the, the dumb question for, for our listeners who may not be, you know, as up on current U.S. Army usage. When, you know, when we think cavalry, especially in history, we think horses. But, of course, you guys are proof we still have cavalry. So what is the cavalry role in the modern future U.S. Army usage? Yeah, so in the current Army, cavalry is, is uh, mostly armored uh, mounted for armored mechanized forces. So tanks, Bradleys, trucks, uh, strikers, wheel, you know, uh, wheeled vehicles, uh, but mostly tanks and Bradleys. That's that's the heart of the cavalry, I would say. Um, and in in armored warfare, it's used out front to uh, to to cover, to recon, to shape conditions, uh, so that the Corps commander or division commander can can uh, bring bring his assault forces to bear in the time and place of his choosing. One of the ways I described the junior officers coming into the cavalry squadron is we are the I was brigade cavalry, uh, the squadron S three and XO uh, is we were the brigade's figure it out force. Uh, there's when you go forward into a battle. You've got electronic eyes out forward. You've got all sorts of sensors. But there's a host of ways to defeat all of those things. There's nothing yet that can replace, that can fully replace a soldier riding forward on whatever mount or on foot and physically looking, physically getting out there. And then, uh, as uh, Colonel Jennings pointed out, developing the situation. It's not just finding what's out there and doing it's making the enemy react uh, and make them make decisions. And at that point, as they're making decisions, they're showing their hand in the fight and that allows the friendly force to then operate with more and with more certainty, more knowledge. My joke is we were the, we're the, we're the stick that you get to poke into the bushes to, to see what's there. Sometimes it's hard on the stick, but that's why we get to wear Stetsons. And uh, if we're closing out, I, I could offer one more interesting aspect of this, is that the platforms have changed. We're on tanks now, Bradleys, Humvees, uh, the joint the joint light tactical vehicle. Uh, but many of the traditions have stayed the same. Uh, if you go to Fort Hood right now, you have the 1st Cav Division there, and you'll see people wearing Stetsons, the old cavalry Stetson. You'll see the commanding general wearing his spurs, the, uh, the cavalry units all have spur rides, which is a tradition reaching back where a soldier kind of earns his his or her place in the unit. And so that's what's cool. The guidons, the same guidons we carry, you'll see in a John Wayne movie, uh, the guys, the boys in blue riding their horses. Um, so you're saying so this a lot all, of spree decor there. So you're putting this all back to Texas, too, because as a, as a transplanted Texan, I will... Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we have to put it... We have, let's put this back into Texas. So how does Texas kind of fit into this grander tradition, then? Well, a lot of the cavalry had to make its bones on the Texas frontier. Yeah, and what I would say as a native Texan is it sounds like the, the role you've, you've described as, as the current and future cavalry role is the spirit and the mission of the Texian cavalry, which is to disrupt, to force an enemy yeah. to make decisions, and to be that force that does the things that maybe the, the, the drill book doesn't have in it. Yeah, the, the key touch points being mobility and firepower. That hasn't changed. There's still a place for that on the battlefield, and it's irreplaceable. Dr. Jennings, thank you. Thank you. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, 
where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.